Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Roberto Mazza, and today for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Jacob Norris. Jacob is currently a senior lecturer in Middle Eastern history at the University of Sussex, and is previously the author of Land of Progress, Palestine in the Age of Colonial Development, published in 2013. But today, with Jacob, we're going to discuss his latest book, The Lives and Deaths of Jibrail Dabdub, or How the Bethlehemites Discover America, published by Stanford University Press in 2023. This is the fantastical yet real story of the merchants of Bethlehem, the young men who traveled to every corner of the globe in the 19th century. Probably we saw some of them even today in some of the Christmas markets across the United States. These men set off with suitcases full of crosses and rosaries, and returned with news of mysterious lands and strange inventions, clocks, trains, and other devices that befuddled and bewitched the Bethlehemites in equal measure. With newfound wealth, they built shimmering pink mansions that transformed the urban structure of Bethlehem. At the center of these extraordinary occurrences is Jubrail Dabdub. The Lives and Deaths of Jubrail Dabdub tells the story of Jubrail's encounters, moving from his childhood in rural Bethlehem to voyages across Europe, East Asia, and obviously the Americas, culminating in a recorded miracle. In 1909, Jubrail was brought back from the dead. To tell such a tale is to delve into the realms of the fantastic and the improbable, realms in which the historian rarely treads. Drawing on aspects of magical realism combined with elements of Palestinian folklore, the author, Jacob Norris, evokes the atmosphere of late 19th century Bethlehem. As the book offers an original approach to historical writing, it captures a fantastic story of global encounter and exchange. But before we delve into all of this, Jacob, welcome. Thank you, Roberto. Very, very good to be here. Jacob, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the origins of the book? Uh, yeah, so I'm a historian who has been working for many years on, I suppose, the social and cultural history of Palestine uh, within the wider um, Middle East and North Africa region. I guess I've also come from a background which um, has strong influences of global history. I did my PhD at Cambridge as part of the World History Group there. So I think I've always been interested in connecting 
um, Palestine's uh, Palestine's history to these broader flows and currents and thinking about Palestine within transnational contexts. Um, in terms of uh, how the book itself came about, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time in Bethlehem. I was there when I was researching my PhD, um, learning Arabic and made some very good friends there. And the more time I spent in Bethlehem, the more I became aware of this very uh, global set of influences within the town. It seemed like everybody has a, a cousin, an auntie, a brother, a sister um, in some far-flung country around the world, mostly actually in Latin America. So I just became very curious about, well, how does, how does this happen? This town, which in many ways is so hemmed in um, within the occupied Palestinian territories of the West Bank, surrounded by the Israeli separation wall, checkpoints, so many kind of restrictions on people's everyday movements. And yet at the same time, there's this sense of connectivity on such a global scale. So that really intrigued me. And I just started to look into that, speaking to people, um, and gradually began to do research on that topic and realized there was this whole history of of migration and circulation um with Bethlehem playing a really really central role in that beginning in the in the mid to late 19th century and continuing up until at least the British mandate years so that was the sort of that was the origins of the book's research and from there I started to delve into specific angles within that I guess but really thinking about how and Bethlehem built this this global set of connections through the circulation of its own residents in the late 19th century. There's an interesting connection with a previous author that I interviewed, Nadim Bawalsa, author of Transnational Palestine, who personally was sitting, if I remember well, uh, in a funeral in Bejala, and he discovered to have relatives uh, across the ocean in Latin America exactly mentioning you know what you just said about this network extensive network of relationship personal and family relationship between Bethlehem and essentially the rest of the world no i would i would strongly recommend nadim's book to your listeners <clears throat> it's called transnational palestine uh, and in a way nadim's book and my book are, are kind of the mirror image of each other nadim's book is more focused on latin america it looks in particular at mexico and chile um, and Honduras, uh, and the kind of political campaigns that um, Palestinians in those areas waged, uh, in the especially during the mandate years, and he's arguing very convincingly that that's a, that we should consider that a crucial part of Palestine's history of resistance to colonial rule. My book is in some ways more focused on Bethlehem itself. So how do those migrations impact and transform the self through these, the town itself through these very circular circular movements. And I guess I go back a little bit further than than Nadim in terms of the time reach. But um, yeah, I think they speak to each other very closely. Your first book, Land of Progress, Palestine in the Age of Colonial Development, 1905-1948, was published by Oxford University Press in 2013. And I can say it was a, a traditional monograph. This book is not the usual academic work. So The Lives and Deaths of Jubrai Dabdub is slightly different. In fact, it's a work merging together history and fiction. And I was wondering if you can talk about the writing process, its difficulties and successes. Yeah, it certainly feels like a, a bit of a step into the unknown for me. It is a departure from, from my previous historical writing. What, one way, to, I suppose, to, to, to explain that is through this, this key moment in the research process for me, which occurred in 2015. Um, when I heard about these two uh, Palestinian women, Miriam Bowarde and um, 
um, Marie Alphonsine, who were being um, canonized by the, the Catholic Church in Rome. And they were being celebrated. This is sort of a global news event. And in Palestine itself, Palestinian Christians especially, were sort of proudly celebrating this um, as, a, as a moment of national significance. Some people talk about it as Palestine's first kind of official Catholic saints. So I was following this, and in particular, the... Um, the life of this woman, Marie Alphonsine, her original sort of um, given name at birth was um, Sultane Miriam Khatas. She was a woman from Jerusalem, but spent a lot of her life in Bethlehem. And I just started to look into her and the miracles that were associated with her life. And there's various kind of online sources about her. And I stumbled across this event from 1909, where she's um, where we find her uh, bringing back from the dead a guy called Jubrail Dabdub. And I sort of stopped dead in my tracks. I think I was reading the the web pages actually of the the Rosary Sisters, which is the congregation that this woman Maria Alfonsine established. And it was one of those moments as a historian, you know, where they, they happen all too rarely, but sort of moment of serendipity where you sort of you know there's a there's a a wonderful kind of explosion that happens when you realize this this is the guy that I've been researching in connection to these Bethlehem migrations, Jubril Dabdub. He wasn't certainly wasn't the only person. I've been researching many different sort of strands of family history within those Bethlehem uh, migrations and experiences. But Jubrail was probably the person that I had, I felt I had the most interesting collection of sources relating to his movements. And the reason I start with that is because it just um, switched my mind into a different gear in terms of thinking about this guy, Jubrail Dabdub, because up to that point, I very much considered him and his peers in terms of these young men, they were mainly young men in the in the mid to late 19th century, traveling the world as businessmen. And I'd always thought of them as quite, I suppose, rational economic agents who were you know, often very successful or effective as traders and brought back a lot of capital to Bethlehem itself. And suddenly we find him here in this miracle. And as I looked into the sources more, I realized that this was an event which he himself and his wider family seemed to very much um, believe to have been a supernatural divine intervention that brought him back from the dead. He was declared dead by the local priest from typhoid fever. And it just suddenly um, forced me to start thinking about these characters in a slightly different way, to think, well, actually, these are people deeply embedded in um, a view of, of spirituality and a view of local religion in an Arabo-Islamic context, which I probably hadn't been giving that much thought to. So my next my next challenge, in a way, was, OK, how do I write up this miracle and include it in this book project that I'm that I'm starting to put together about Bethlehem, um, Bethlehem merchants? And I toyed around, I, I sort of dived into theories, particularly sociological and anthropological theories about, about miracles, about reciprocity, gift giving, patronage, I gave conference talks, and it, it, it sort of all made sense. It was quite a logical, rationalised way of explaining the miracle that in a way these Bethlehem merchants acted as patrons of Marie Alphonsine and the order that she was part of. But I just found myself a little bit dissatisfied in the sense that um, I was very aware that I wasn't really giving much attention to the, the the way in which the characters themselves clearly had perceived this event as some kind of divine or supernatural intervention had taken place and not really giving that sufficient credence. Um, so I became more interested in what anthropologists call the ontological turn, um, which is a way of saying that actually people inhabit very different, um, very different sort of um mental universes and that we can't explain 
Um, we can't explain everything through one sort of singular set of symbols, one singular set of kind of um, cultural markers. And actually we accept fundamental, fundamentally different mental universes and that, that as a scholar, sometimes we need to go with that. And so I set about myself the task of writing up this miracle. And the more I did that, the more I thought, actually, why not turn this whole book actually into an exercise in thinking about um, um, different ways of writing history. So that was the that was the starting point, really. Much further down the line, I ended up at this sort of, um, if you like, a toolkit that I developed through borrowing um, essentially from authors of magical realist fiction, um, which is a genre, as your listeners will be aware, of, of fiction, which is especially associated with Latin America, um, but has really been picked up and used and um, <clears throat> you know, and reimagined in various literary contexts around the world, particularly in the global south, I think, particularly where you have writers interested in this sometimes very arresting, traumatic dynamic where people are exposed quite rapidly quite suddenly to processes of colonialism, of global capital and capitalism, of industrial modernity, um, and the, the the very arresting juxtapositions that can arise from that. And magical realist fiction is very good at capturing that, I certainly felt. I'd, I've been reading magical realist fiction for many years. Um, and so um, with great trepidation, <laughs> I started to try and write this narrative in that kind of style. I need to make clear to your listeners that I'm not claiming any literary merit here whatsoever. It's more of an experiment as a historian who's very much trained in a, let's say, realist form of writing, a certain way that we're trained through your education as historians and other social science, humanity subjects to, to, to write in a particular way. So I was trying to unlearn some of that stuff. But in a way, just all what happens if, if we borrow some of the classic tropes of um, magical realist authors. Um, and so that's how the kind of project unfolded from there, I guess. Well, I must admit that I'm not a huge reader of uh, non-academic uh, works. So, you know, I bought into your fictional parts uh, greatly and I really enjoyed it. And I and I personally think, and, and I was thinking when reading that, you know, you were filling the gaps with uh, material that made sense related to the context of individuals. And I was actually going to ask you about the difficulties in terms of like convincing academic publishers like Stanford University Press to publish something that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, comply with the traditional academic uh, canons and rules of a monograph. Uh, absolutely. It's a good question because I, um, I either had sort of total silence or, or some outright kind of um, hostility from a few publishers. Um, in the academic, in the academic sector, we won't name name names, uh, and I can understand that. I think there was, I, I guess, this project looked like a bit of a risk. So, actually, a huge shout out to Kate Wall in particular at Stanford, who've um, seen very, you know, I think it's important as a as a writer to establish some kind of uh, rapport and mutual understanding, right, with your editor and and Kate at Stanford seemed to get the project from a very early stage. And that was really important to me to have someone who was buying into, um, you know, the the methods, the writing style, as much as the kind of content, the subject matter. So Stanford have been fantastic and actually pushed me to, to go further and say, look, let's not do this by halves. If this is going to be an interesting project, the, the interest lies to a great extent in pushing those boundaries a little bit. So, um, the team at Stanford convinced me, for example, um, 
not to include an index, shock horror, which um, was something that really struck me as unusual from an academic perspective, um, to put the acknowledgements at the back of the book, um, to have all of the um, the end notes, again, tucked away at the back of the book, so as not that the end notes are very, the notes in the book are very extensive. You essentially have a kind of what is hopefully a flowing narrative chapter by chapter, which is very story driven. And all of the kind of research, I suppose, that underpins that is in these quite, quite lengthy, detailed notes, but they're all pushed away at the back of the book so as not to disturb the flow of that narrative. Uh, various things like that, including a family tree, including um, certain maps. So, yeah, Stanford were, were excellent at that. And I don't think all academic publishers would be as open minded as that. Um, so I can only be thankful for their for their role and their input. Let me ask a question about sources, because obviously you mentioned footnotes at the end. Now, uh, the lives and deaths of the main character and obviously also the other uh, individuals mentioned in the book have left traces. So I was wondering what kind of archival material you used uh, in relation to uh, the stories told here in the book. Anything and everything is the short answer, Roberto, I think, because these are these are actors who don't tend to appear in conventional, certainly institutional archives. They slip through the cracks of of colonial as well as national histories. Um, Jubrail himself, you know, Jubrail is, I use him almost as an exile. He's almost a composite character. I mean, he was a real man. He was he, he, he was born in 1860. He died in 1931. And the sort of skeleton of his biography that the book traces is all very much documented. Um, but like many of his peers from that generation, there are huge holes in the source materials available to us. So after years, you know, this is a project that's been, it's still ongoing to be honest, but at least 10 years of following these families around the world on my part. Um, and there were there were big silences. So what, what do you do with those silences? How do you start to fill them in? And the sort of um, approach that I gradually came to settle upon is is one of thinking of Jubrail, like I say, as a kind of composite character. So through extensive contextual research, we can start to imagine, and this is where I suppose the fictional side of things really, really kicks in. We can start to imagine how certain episodes in his life and the people around him may have played out. And I try to be very clear about this in the book, and this is where the end notes come in very useful because I can explain, you know, I don't, I don't want to make claims that this was this is an empirically verifiable um, a moment or event in his specific life. And so I try to make that clear in the notes where in this case, I've, I've imagined a, a scene or an encounter that he was in this place or that he was doing this kind of activity at the time. Um, and it's a mixture. I sort of move between those two, you know, the empirically verifiable and the imaginary, um, which might get some people's backs up. I can, I can imagine within certainly, um, yeah, more empirically sort of wedded historians. Um, but um, that's, yeah, that, that that's the basic approach, I guess, trying to, in terms of the specific source materials, it's, it's very kind of, eth, you know, ethnographic history in a way. So family, first and foremost, is how people in Bethlehem um, trace their own histories. So it's about using the, the parish archives are always good starting points. Um, in Bethlehem itself, uh, the Latin parish archives of Jubrail was from a, a Latin Catholic family. Um, Bethlehem has a long, a long sort of history of Catholicism being very strong alongside the Orthodox Church in Bethlehem. They were very useful. 
and then carrying out a lot of sort of interviews, a lot of oral history work, trying to understand how certain characters and figures were remembered and how events have been processed collectively. And then in, in terms of the more detailed stuff, shipping records, immigration records, um, business um, uh, business directories in the various countries to which they travelled. And it's just sort of often having to, to sift through reams and reams of sources without getting anywhere. And then you might, ah, okay, in Honduras, for example, where I spent quite a lot of time, suddenly you come across a shop in the business directory from 1910, and it's the Dabdub family shop. So things like that, and just, and yeah, noting those things down, photographs in the, in the slightly later periods, um, began to play a role as well. There were one or two examples of kind of written, more extensive written testimony. So a cousin of Jubrail, a man called Ibrahim Yohanna Dabdub, um, wrote a very um, an unpublished, handwritten sort of memoir of his life. Very sort of rudimentary. You know, it was just in in yeah in his own sort of existing the own sort of paper copy that he made. The family very kindly shared that with me. And he talks, you know, his life intersected with Jubilees in in various interesting ways. So that was one sort of more, if you like, kind of um, personalized, um, extensive written source. But they're few and far between. These, on the whole, were people of business who tended to even that memoir that I just mentioned. If you actually read the memoir, it's it's just almost a list. It's sort of, and then we went to um, Argentina um, with my cousin Elias, and we made. Uh, 250 francs and we came back to Bethlehem and invested in the shop and then we went to the Philippines and we made you know and it's just a list of sort of almost like a kind of ledger book and uh, so it's, it, again it's quite sparse in terms of emotions um, in terms of how they are kind of mentally processing these great transformations which is where again the imaginary starts to become quite a powerful a powerful tool available to us as historians. Now, picking up the book, I want to start with the end, actually. I want to ask you about the commentary. And I was wondering if you can tell us more about how does your approach help writing Palestinian history? And what does add to what we already know about Palestinian history? Well, I mean, perhaps in a very small way, this can firstly help to just broaden out our understanding of the richness and diversity of Palestinian societies prior to the Nakba and the great dispossession and dispersal of the Palestinian people in 1948. Um, the Bethlehemite story it doesn't seem at first glance to conform so neatly to the to the kind of often told story, which is one of, of um, I suppose, Palestinian, um, above all, victimhood um, and persecution at the hands of British colonialism and Zionism and, and above all conflict, especially in the, in the British mandate period. The Bethlehemites seem to be operating on a, on a different trajectory, a different sort of plane that at, at the same time as this conflict with Zionism is emerging or even slightly prior to that, they're busy traveling the world um, uh, and, and building up their business empires. And that actually transforms Bethlehem into it's difficult to measure this but um, I would say the richest town in in Palestine in many ways if you look at its architecture if you look at the um the concentration of of businesses in Bethlehem um so that so although that's not fitting into that story of um resistance and and, and conflict with Zionism I think it does just help us to round out our idea of the richness of Palestinian society and and how much was lost in the Nakba because in many ways, this this um, 
this mobility and this circulation is shut down. It's already been shut down by the British as early as the mid-20s. Nadim Boalsa writes about this very well in his book. Um, but this is a world which certainly post-1948 ceases to be so interactive and, and so much of a kind of um, cross-fertilization of ideas and travel. As we know, Palestinians are sort of shut down into ever-shrinking spaces as the 20th century progresses and runs into the 21st. So I think helping us to recover the richness, the diversity of Palestinian society. Uh, in terms of how the book's written, um, one of my great, um, one of my probably my favourite Palestinian author, it's difficult to choose, but writer of fiction at least, is Emil Habibi. And he's someone who is very well known for taking a sometimes kind of absurdist, he is sometimes described as a magical realist writer himself, um, to his fiction, and capturing that sense of the of the ridiculousness. Um, and this is not wishing to sort of trivialise Palestinian experience, um, but Habibi was a great inspiration for me because he makes he makes you laugh at the sheer absurdity um, and the um, the sort of this this paradoxical nature of Palestinian um, experience. Particularly, I mean, his most well books, most well known book, Said the Pess Optimist, is sort of famous for doing this, and that that did get me thinking because, for very understandable reasons and very, you know, this is a pressing project, right, to document the. The Palestinian dispossession, historically speaking, to document it in verifiable terms, collecting data, whether it's about property ownership, whether it's about numbers of people killed in certain historical episodes, whether it's about refugee displacements. I need to document that in a very factual sense. And I think over the decades, Palestinian historians and historians of Palestine more broadly have been very focused on that. It's such a highly charged political atmosphere. Um, but sometimes perhaps where that leaves um, space a bit less explore, explored is in this notion of the um, the kind of um, the 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 arresting juxtapositions of Palestinian history of a kind of an, um, a sense of the absurd, a sense of the um, of the, sometimes the um, the. So how do we process these very kind of traumatic events in terms that aren't just about um, cataloging facts and figures. So hopefully in its own small way, the book can sort of open up a slightly different angle onto that in that tradition of of, um, of Habibi and others. Um, but um, I think there's, yeah, I think there's already a lot of interesting work going on in that, in that regard, actually. We covered a lot of ground discussing methodology and sources and obviously sort of the original approach of, of your book towards uh, Palestinian history. And now I want to focus a little bit more on, on the story itself. I want to, you know, with you, tell the listeners what the book is about. And so I was wondering if you can start with uh, the general context, how Bethlehem looked like in the 19th century. And perhaps you can introduce also the Dabdub family and mentioning also the origin of a family name that for non-Arabic speakers, Dabdub essentially means teddy bear. There are lots of theories about the origins of the Dabdub name, which I do not um, claim to have a definitive answer to. But um, yeah, there are theories about um, various uh, family progenitors who were, had bear-like features, who stomped like a bear, or who were in times of hardship were stomping the ground, trying to find edible plants amongst the weeds. Um, very, or, or, yeah, various sort of um, idiosyncratic features. I don't think that one's uh, one that I'm going to be able to resolve, I'm, I'm afraid. But I suppose that does raise a wider question about surnames, which I found quite interesting. 
And in the case of Bethlehem, I think this is common in many parts of the world, not just in Palestine. Surnames, there seems to be a very definite moment in the parish records, at least, when families start to take on surnames, particularly in the 1700s. Um, we can speculate that this is uh, as, you know, this is connect, this is linked to the need to distinguish yourself if, um, when you go further afield in terms of trade and other forms of social interaction. So previously, Bethlehemites like, in the uh, you know, uh, people across the wider region would just use their um, <clears throat> their their um their nasab name so ibn such and such or or bint such and such so you might be um elias ibn um hanna for example but if you go to a town that is uh 20 miles away and there are there are there's another elias ibn hanna how do you how do you start to distinguish yourself whether you're a merchant or whether you're thinking about other times types of social economic interaction so in bethlehem it's it seems very um yeah, very distinct moment where where families start to. It's a lot of it is about um, tracing back your ancestry. What and which roots back through ancestry do you trace? Um, in the case of these Catholic families, like the Dabdubs, are very keen to associate themselves in many cases with um, some forms of uh, imagined European ancestry. I say imagined, not in the sense that that doesn't necessarily exist, but you know you can you can focus on. Uh, one specific strand of your genealogy to the expense of others right and by emphasizing this one strand you are making a kind of active decision conscious or other otherwise to imagine your family history in a certain way so that's certainly the case with the catholic families uh, i'm digressing here i think you are you ask me well generally well how does bethlehem look at the start of the 19th century i think you have a essentially a large village which has long been connected to the outside world, because primarily through pilgrimage. Bethlehem sits just six miles or so um, south of Jerusalem, obviously because of its biblical significance. It's, it's long been a centre for pilgrims of all sorts, um, Christians of many kinds, but also Muslims and Jews. There are many sites in the wider region uh, that draw in those pilgrim pilgrims. At the, so, so Bethlehemites are quite used to having um, outsiders in their town, but at the same time, it seems relatively unusual for Bethlehemites to be traveling long distances, certainly in the up, up to the early to mid 19th century. Um, but what they do have is a rapidly developing um, art, local artisanal trade in devotional objects or so what we might call Holy Land souvenirs. And Bethlehem becomes quite distinct in this sense for these goods that their, their local artisans produce. A lot of this is related to the particular history of, of intensive interactions with uh, with the Catholic world in Bethlehem. The Franciscan order has a sort of central role to play in this. The Franciscans were able to maintain their presence more or less um, continuously in Bethlehem after the Crusades, other, unlike other towns across the region where, um, where they weren't able to, to maintain their convent. And for various reasons, the Franciscans have much more success in Bethlehem than anywhere else in the wider region. And you have already by the 1700s, around half of Bethlehem's population, maybe even slightly more, is sort of at least formally registering themselves as Roman Catholics. These aren't Maronites or other kind of uniate churches which are loosely connected to the Catholic Church. These are out-and-out -out Roman Catholics who have a very direct relationship with the Franciscan community. The Franciscan convent in in Bethlehem, and they produce certain types of goods which are designed for the Franciscans to sell to visiting pilgrims. And the Franciscans do very well out of this trade. They they 
for for since at least the 1500s they've been shipping them around to their benefactors and to various churches around Europe the franciscans have this very wide network of connections of course and the bethlehemites have long played the role of these kind of subservient local producers often coming into tension and conflict with their franciscan masters i guess we could say but very interesting things happen in the 19th century the town for various for a series of reasons largely connected to globalization to the rise of steam travel um of um of communications if we're becoming more affordable to travel long distances um the bethlehemites start to take their products themselves to external markets and this involves again a lot of tension with the franciscans but they manage to start bypassing the franciscan um the franciscan community as a, as a sort of middle stratum and you know it requires a lot of trial and error some very you know a lot of failures especially in the early stages but by the 1870s you find that they're sending out bethlehem families are sending out young men often aged as, as young as 16 17 to various parts of europe and then further afield to the americas or even east to parts of um, south and eastern asia to um to trade in these goods and often achieving great success these are goods produced primarily from mother of pearl um through the france partly through the franciscans at least the bethlehemites have developed their very unique style of mother of pearl carving which is at the high end incredibly sophisticated um intricate uh works of art. some of the finest works of art i would say to come out of palestine at any stage of history in fact and they use that as a sort of a stepping stone um you know, if you turn up in a country, the Philippines, for example, was one of the tar- the countries they targeted in the 1880s. And Philipp- for good reason. The Philippines is a Catholic country, right? Um, under Spanish colonial rule, and the Spanish are encouraging at that very time um, more open forms of trade um, and more liberal, quote-unquote, liberal immigration policies. And so the Bethlehemites are quite savvy at tapping into that. And they find captive markets, people who never had the chance to travel to the Holy Land, but a sense of a sort of more visceral um, physical contact through these objects um, allows the Bethlehemites to really prosper as merchants. And from there, they expand into all sorts of import-export businesses that eventually have very little to do with these devotional objects, Was that's certainly the starting point. Um, and as we move through the 19th century into the early 20th century, you find these kind of family business empires developing which is which bringing back large amounts of capital into Bethlehem. So the town's sort of social urban fabric changes, new styles of architecture. The town expands beyond its cluster in the uh, arranged, you know, along the ridge of Bethlehem where the Nativity Church is located. It expands outwards um, as these families build their new mansions and workshops. So it really it radically alters um, the, the sort of physical and social fabric of Bethlehem. I know you asked me specifically about Jubril's family and his parents. I don't know if you want me to elaborate on that. Yeah, I wanted to ask about uh, his family. So the story of uh, Jubril Dabdub, uh, as you mentioned, is deeply intertwined with the one of the city of Bethlehem and also with Sister Marie uh, Alphonsine, but we will talk about her later. And I was wondering if you can start talking about Jubril's father and mother, particularly Rosa, who is a key figure in the story. Yeah, his um, Rosa Batarse was Jubreil's mother. She was born in 1826 and married at a very young age, at the age of 15, 
um, into the Dabdub family. So these were two Catholic families from what's called the Tarajme quarter of Bethlehem, which is a group of Catholic families who historically had some kind of role as translators and interpreters. And her family in particular, the Batarse family, sort of pride, pr um, prided itself on being probably closer than any family to the Franciscans. So they had a, quite an elevated status within the con Bethlehem sort of local context. Um, and you find these strategic marriages um, taking place as these families are just starting to build up their businesses in the 1850s and 60s and even slightly prior to that. So Rosa is married into this um, uh, the into the Dabdub family at a very young age. Her, her new husband, Yusuf Dabdub, is clearly, I mean, we don't know so much about Yusuf, but clearly he was an ambitious young man who established one of the first kind of more professionalized workshops of Mother of Pearl in Bethlehem. And studying the parish records, I did some sort of statistical studies as well about the, the wider Dabdub family. There's hundreds and hundreds of entries for the Dabdubs in the from, from this period of the births, the marriages, et cetera, et cetera, the baptisms. And I found that in that period when just as the mother of pearl trade and the and the migration is really taking off, the number of children per family um, really expands. So it seems like the goal is almost to have as many children as possible and to produce as many sons as possible. Because as I mentioned earlier, these young sons are being sent off to travel the world and try and uh, establish new trading bases for these families. And so Rosa, in many ways, her sort of story conforms to that. As I say, married at the age of 15, she has eight children. Um, Jubrail is, let me see, the fifth of those. Um, she has one, two, three, four sons and five sons, sorry, five sons and three daughters. And um, in a way, it's easy to sort of leave her role there because in terms of the travel and <clears throat> um, this, this overseas migration in the early stages, it was very much young men. But the more I looked into Rosa's story, the more it became apparent to me that clearly she and others like her were playing absolutely fundamental roles in the in the sort of maintenance of these family businesses um, as as bookkeepers, um, as purveyors of a new kind of um, sort of domestic uh, modernity as well in terms of the palaces that were built and how they were furnished. Um, but also as the men increasingly find themselves abroad, the women often do play the role of maintaining that family base back in Bethlehem. And Rosa seems to be a very strong character in this Dabdub family um, history. <clears throat> and so I was, I was sort of fascinated by her as a figure and her relationship to, to Jubrail because, you know, true to form, her young sons, including Jubrail at the age of 18, I think he makes his first overseas journey, are sent to, you know, this is very exciting, I guess, but also... Um, a, a period of great sort of trepidation, fear for for the families as these young these young boys essentially are sent out to to distant corners of the world, and would they come back? And sometimes they didn't. The parish records are littered with examples of young men who are just recorded often in Italian. The, the Catholic parish records will just say um, "morto in America" or "morto in Argentina" or whatever it might be. So died in whatever country in Latin America or, or elsewhere as news has sort of filtered back in quite a vague way. So it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a sort of arresting traumatic time as well. Um, so that's the story of, yeah, of Rosa. I would like to start talking about uh, the trips that you already mentioned. Some were successful, some were not. 
And uh, for Jobril, the first trip is actually to Paris. That didn't really turn out to be very successful on a personal basis. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense about the journeys and their missions of these young Bethlehemites or even more experienced individuals. And also, if you can talk about the expanding network of Bethlehemites around the world, how they saw, for instance, uh, America, so America, and how did these new countries look like to them, whether the Philippines, whether America, or other, you know, Latin American countries, for instance? Yeah, that's that's something which is very hard to capture, actually, in sort of precise, let's say, empirical terms as a historian. As I said, they're very... There's a handful of works that I came across from the Dabdub family and, and their wider network, which gives us give us glimpses into this. But I think we're in a period where, it's, it's, especially in many areas of the Ottoman Empire, I think people very, very visibly, visibly and very viscerally have a sense of living through times of great transformation. And almost that time itself is, is speeding up as these new forms of connections, of transportation, of communication um, come into play. Uh, it's a fascinating work that I came across um, by a scholar called Pauline Lewis, who's talking about the advent of the telegraph, for example, in the Ottoman Empire. Um, she wrote a great dissertation, PhD dissertation called Wired Ottomans. And um, amongst the sources that she used, she finds this um, Syriac gospel book from the town of Idil in today's southeastern Turkey. A gospel book where you normally get illustrations of saints, lives um, and miracles and sort of what we might think of as more conventionally religious themes. And in this gospel book, she shows this amazing illustration of the telegraph line that connected Istanbul to Baghdad with the wires depicted um, and the lines in the center of the picture and how they sort of burrow deep into the houses of these two cities. And the text that accompanies that talks about this as a wonder, as a miracle, using that kind of terminology. So I think that's what most fascinated me was the, the extent to which these, um, yeah, these very arresting forms of modern um, technology, um, modern capitalism, often in a very kind of colonial context, would have appeared to people from a place like Bethlehem, where people are for the first time on a sort of um, collective level, stepping outside of a relatively local context. You know, it's one thing to have a pilgrim from Germany or from Iraq in your local church, praying in your local church. But it's another thing when it's your your brother or your uncle or your cousin who has just come back from a long journey and there's a much more sense of much more of a sense of the immediacy and the and the, the, the proximity of that. So often what I try to do in the book is to almost recapture a scene when people are in the central square of Bethlehem, Baba Deir, the manger square, as we call it, and um, imagine a traveler like Jubrail coming back from a place like the Philippines and, and or the, the exhibition he went to in Chicago, for example, um, the World's Columbian Expo Exposition in Chicago in 1893, which he won a prize at along with his brothers for their display there. And, and the kind of reactions and the way in which those stories might have been told to a local population was probably eager to hear about these things, but also unsure what might have been embellished, what might be fact, what might be fiction, the blurred sort of lines between that. Um, so often I tried to retell the stories in that sense, so not necessarily making a claim that this is exactly what happened and this is exactly what Jubilee felt, but capture more sort of an attempt to capture an atmosphere, um, a prevailing sort of zeitgeist at the time of excitement and confusion and disorientation. Um, but and then at other stages, I've written passages on the ships themselves when Jubilee 
takes his first trip to Paris or to the Philippines as a young man in 1881, moving through locations um, for the first time as a young man and how how sort of um, bewildering that must have been. Um, so going back to the point about the uh, magical realist approach that I adopted, one of the things that magical realist authors are famous for doing is inverting our expectations of what constitutes the ordinary and what constitutes the abnormal or the supernatural and often describing the kind of um technologies of modern capitalism in in terms of 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 miracles of awe of wonder as well as in more let's say traumatic terms but something that's essentially unnatural something that's essentially strange befuddling bewildering <clears throat> using that kind of language whereas um in certain contexts, experiences of um, <clears throat> what we might think of as supernatural interventions can be uh, are described by magical realist authors in a deliberately sort of deadpan way, as if the audience would have expected that to happen. And it's not really necessarily yet something particularly worth remarking on in any great sort of hyperbole. So I deliberately tried to do that in some of the descriptions to invert those those categories of the ordinary and the <clears throat> and the um and the sort of paranormal. Yeah, thinking about Jubilee's very first journey, which you asked me about, his first sort of overseas journey, it was to 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 Paris to, to attend one of the many sort of world's fairs or expositions that were held in Paris. This one was in 1878. So here I've made it, hopefully made it clear in the end notes, this isn't necessarily something that happened directly to Jubilee, but at that at that event, reading through the reports that were made by the um by the organizers of the exhibition. Um, this is the exhibition that's held on the Trocadero, so just opposite across the river from where the Eiffel Tower is today. Of course, the Eiffel Tower was built for a later exposition in 1889. Um, but from the reports of the 1878 exhibition that I know Jubilee attended with his elder brothers, there's this fascinating story of some of the Bethlehemite traders who are kicked out because they have um, their own designated stall and they're, they're participating through the Ottoman, <clears throat> um, the Ottoman section of the exhibition. And they have their designated stall. But what they start doing is subletting that stall to people from various other um, areas. Um, some remarks are made to sort of, um, <clears throat> I think, Syrian, Lebanese, but even possibly from further afield, who are kind of selling um, what are described as kind of counterfeits, holy land objects. And because this is something that wasn't, you know, strictly forbidden at the fest at the at the exhibition, they were they were removed from the exhibition grounds because of this. So I sort of imagined, okay, maybe Jubilee himself was directly involved in that. Maybe he wasn't. And it's it's quite likely that he was part of that of that group. There weren't that many Bethlehemites there. There were a couple of other families there. Perhaps they're all in on it together. We're not quite sure actually. But just to then sort of imagine what that looked like and tell it through the eyes of Jubilee, going back to him being a kind of composite historical character, and. That's just fascinating for me because the the Bethlehemites were very quickly imitated, mimicked by all sorts of other um, traders, um, hawkers, merchants uh, of, of of various kinds, of peddlers, and the, these exhibitions are often a place where we find that happening. So at the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, eighteen seventy six, the the reports there talk about how there were people with Irish accents 
hawking holy land goods. So I think people very quickly realize, oh, this is quite a lucrative trade, actually. We can we can try this ourselves. And the Bethlehemites have an interesting connection to that uh, sort of relationship to them. So the, the Paris exhibition, 1878, we find them realizing that can have some financial benefit because we can sublet out to these people and give them our holy land sort of brand on our store. But in, in probably more commonly, they're actually very keen especially when they travel to new areas of the world and trying to set up shop there to distinguish themselves. So we're the real thing. We're the real Bethlehemites from the real Holy Land. Um, in most cases, we're talking about people from modern day Lebanon imitating them. And this is quite well documented. If you read the, the work of you know famous writers like Amin Rehani famously satirizes this, um, all of these sort of trinkets and counterfeit Holy Land goods that are actually being produced in factories in Marseille and New York primarily. Um, but based on this Bethlehemite success model. So you find that the Bethlehemites play quite a crucial role in the wider history of the Arab diaspora, because this is the time in which people from across Ottoman Syria, today's Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, are uh, um, established themselves in large numbers, particularly in the Americas. Huge um, Lebanese Syrian populations today in Argentina, Brazil, the US, Mexico, many other countries. And often it is the Bethlehemites that were the trailblazers, the first to go there, establish new sort of patterns of migration and trade, and have this mimicry of people in their wake, young young men and women selling sort of fake holy land goods as, a, as an initial route into then doing other stuff. And the Bethlehemites were trying to stay one step ahead of them and search out territories that the Lebanese hadn't yet got to. And this is one of the reasons why they seem to end up in Chile, which has the largest concentration of Palestinians in the Americas today, outside of the Middle East, anywhere in the world today, because it was across the Andes, it was harder to get to rather than places like Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, where the Lebanese were settling in large numbers. So it's um, it's a very sort of um, uh, specific um, story that's that's unique to Bethlehem, but it also has these much bigger ramifications that reverberate across regional histories of, of migration and diaspora. I'm curious about the concept of America. You talk about it in the book. So I was wondering, what is America or America in general for Bethlehemites and for travelers? That's a very interesting question, Roberto. It's uh, a term that I deliberately kept in its colloquial Arabic form in the book, America. <clears throat> of course, in uh, standard Arabic, it would be America, but a more common, commonly used local term in Bethlehem is America. And it, it comes to have a very sort of vague symbolic significance of being, so if this kind of peak period of Bethlehemite emigration, right at the end of the 19th century and the very beginning of the 20th century, it's almost a byword, it seems to be, for anywhere that's kind of overseas, anywhere that's across the waters. Um, possibly not Europe. I think there's a longer history of interaction. I think there's a clearer sense of... Well, certain parts of Europe, at least, um, as I say, as I've said, the Bethlehemites have this uh, long history of close ties to to the to the Catholic Church in Europe, especially the Franciscans. So through that, I think there's a more of a familiarity, um, especially the term frangi, which I've used, which is um, derivative of Frank or connected to the word the Franks from the sort of crusader terminology or faranja in the plural of the colloquial term which refers to Western Europeans, I suppose, not just to France by any means, but um, often it seems to be a byword for kind of Catholic Europe, Northern and Western Europe. So there is a history of that um, uh, that sort of level of, of knowledge um, and <clears throat> familiarity. But as you go as you go into this late 19th century period, suddenly people are traveling 
I mean, I can't emphasize enough, really, to every corner of the world. And America seems to be the term that's used to capture that sense. It's sort of referring to the sense of the unknown, of potentially very lucrative trading opportunities and a lot of exaggerated stories of streets being paved with gold and unbound opportunities there and sort of encouraging these young men and then later women too to set off in search of their riches. Um, I mean, literally every Bethlehem family by the 1890s has got some person who has set off to, to a sort of unknown distant uh, location in the world. So America comes sort of comes to capture that famous you know famously there are stories of people um <clears throat> sort of saying oh my 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 son is currently in in um in a, in uh trading in america and the, and the the person asks him um which part of america then he says it's an island called australia so even areas like australia could be conceived conceived as being part of the this kind of term america which I think it refers to the idea of a, of a new world, of a world of um, of discovery, of trade. Um, and it brings up the notion of these people being sort of, um, you know, there's a there's an intersection with colonial histories there as well, which I think is quite interesting um, to, to think about. Um, above all, the word America comes about, or the concept of America comes about because the majority of these migrations were headed across the Atlantic. Um, not actually so much to North America in the case of Bethlehem, more to Central and South America. So broadly translated, we might say it's the Americas in that in that in that wider sense. Um, but really, it's a, it's a symbolic term for an imagined overseas area of lucrative trade. I want to move to talk about uh, the other main character in the story, at least for part of the story. So let's talk now about Sister Marie Alphonsine. Who was she and how does it relate to the story of uh, Jubrail? So Marie Alphonsine was from a um, Jerusalemite family and she was she was born in the 1840s, so you know 15 years or so before Jubrail, but you know in many ways their lives she died slightly before Jubrail, but their lives sort of ran in parallel in that sense. Um but also very, very different, a very different type of historical character to these Bethlehemite merchants that I was that I was tracing. So I was interested in how those two very different trajectories collided in this recorded miracle in 1909. Um, from quite a young age, she she was she showed herself to be very pious. She wanted to join um, uh, the Sisters of Saint Joseph, a French-run. Um, congregation in Jerusalem and operating in the wider area in Bethlehem as well, um, which she did. But then in the 1870s, she starts to have um, visions, visions of um, the Virgin Mary in particular, very, um, a, a very sort of um, embodied experience of contact with the Virgin Mary. Quite a lot has been written um, on this subject about experiences of visions and the kind of gendered nature of that. Um, the Virgin Mary representing quite sort of complex um, mixture of uh, both sort of um, patriarchal forms of disciplining women in, in certain roles, but also allowing spaces for that to be reimagined um, and recapturing, I suppose, local women's agency through that process. Um, but through these visions of the of the Virgin Mary, she has uh, very 
extremely powerful visions that leave her completely um, <clears throat> exhausted for days afterwards. There is a level of sort of physical intimacy that almost borders on the sexual in these in these encounters, which is an interesting area to um, to explore. Akram Khatar has written about this in his tale of a of an 18th century nun in Lebanon, um, really interestingly. But in the case of Marie Alphonsine, she's, she starts receiving instructions from the Virgin Mary to establish her own congregation um, based on prayer of the rosary, of the Catholic rosary, but very specifically to establish a locally run congregation to, that will specifically serve local Arab women, um, <clears throat> in particularly in the fields of kind of education um, in, and to reach the sort of poorest, most neglected areas of of society which so going back to that kind of dual nature of the virgin mary and her potential you know how we read that there it really sort of highlights that because here we have um, a woman who's schooled in the catholic church as part of a french um order the, the sisters of saint joseph and through the virgin mary is now um being compelled to set up a, a very locally based um an explicitly arab um new religious order and she meets a lot of opposition within the sisters of saint joseph um when she starts she starts to confide in a local priest um, a local jerusalemite arabic speaking priest um who ends up being her sort of supporter within this but a big rift breaks out within <clears throat> the the local community um of of the sisters of saint joseph even requires intervention from the from the vatican to resolve this dispute um, after being exiled for a while, she's eventually able to establish this new order, but it's never revealed that she is the driving force behind it. Rather, it's this priest who she confides in, Yusuf Tanus, who is who is the sort of public founder of the order. Um, and she goes on to um, to work tirelessly with this order for the rest of her life in the local area, as well as across the Jordan River in Assault. Um, where she uh, works with um, very poor communities there who are nominally Catholic due to sort of long ago processes of conversion, but in the eyes of at least sort of Orthodox Catholicism have strayed very far from what is considered to be the true Catholic path. So some very interesting kind of encounters with local women there. And she she writes these really amazing um, memoirs and note, notebooks from her time with the Rosary Sisters, which are still preserved today at the, um, the Rosary Sisters sort of headquarters in Beit Hanina, just outside Jerusalem. Fascinating historical source. And amongst her notebooks are descriptions of the many miracles that she performed, including the salvation or the resurrection of Jubra'il Dabdub, which has a sort of a one-page description. Very matter-of-fact terms. She doesn't actually use the term miracle there. Um, but uh, this, uh, yeah, going back to my earlier points, this is a very... Uh, just a fascinating source for me to 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 look at and to put alongside these kind of histories of of commercial trading of these Bethlehem merchants and see how these worlds um, very much collided. She had been living in Bethlehem with the Rosary Sisters for a few years before that miracle took place with Jubra'il and had already gained a reputation as an almost sort of mystic or a woman with with great healing powers. She had healed blind people. She had pulled children out of wells. She had expelled snakes. Um, she had done all sorts of, kind of carried out all sorts of miraculous um, uh, acts. And Jubra'il was sort of the latest, actually the last in a long line of these, of these miracles which she was held to have performed. 
I was just um, super interested in how her life could could collide with that of of Jubilee Jubilee had traveled the world, had lived in the Philippines, in Central America, in France, in the US. Here was a woman who from a very young age was forbidden by her father to leave Palestine um, and had devoted herself to um, a life of, 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 of poverty and embraced that poverty, actually. So in terms of the values, um, her connectedness to a very rudimentary style of living in contrast to the Bethlehemite merchants and their quest for wealth and their um, display of that wealth, actually, in a lot of the houses and projects which they sponsored in Bethlehem. So in so many ways, this was opposites colliding. And yet I increasingly didn't sort of realise I had to collapse some of those, the idea that these were binary categories, that actually for the Bethlehemite merchants, people like Jubilee, piety, being from Bethlehem and the religious significance of that was absolutely central to who they are. And as their business success was so often attributed in their writings, the letters that they wrote, the language that they used, it was intri intrinsic to that was their sense of faith and the protection of saints and the Virgin Mary in particular as a local, you know, think about um, the figure of Mary and her, her significance to Bethlehem above all places. This was really central to their how they attributed the smooth running of their of their business affairs. So it just opened up a new kind of angle of vision for me. I have a few questions left, and one actually is connected to the question of uh, business affairs and Bethlehem uh, as a developing city. So Jubrail and other Bethlehemites family became very wealthy, obviously, uh, during this period of time. And this was mirrored in the city through its uh, urban structure and obviously uh, growth in population. And I was wondering how did Bethlehem change in light of the expanding world trade of sacred objects? And also if there's any connection with uh, uh, the religious aspects of uh, you know, the miracles, for instance, performed by uh, Marie Alphonsine and uh, you know, whether she was part of the story of uh, increasing sort of the, uh, let's call it value of Bethlehem. Yeah, I think the, the Bethlehemite merchants really needed figures like Marie Alphonsine, not just her. There were many other, <clears throat> this was a period of, um, you know, that's that's one of the things that really interested me. This, I think there was a fervor in Bethlehem at this time that they were living through almost like an age of miracles. My initial working title for the book actually was Bethlehem in the Age of Miracles. <laughs> um, I thought that might distract people into sort of a biblical theme that the book really wasn't about. But um, a sense that unprecedented times are happening on almost limitless possibilities. If you're living in a town which is, or a, you know, really a village, uh, which has been restricted to a to a you know a semi-rural way of life, families still largely reliant upon subsistence agriculture um, for for many centuries, and people largely um, sort of spatially remaining in one place. And then a sudden explosion of movement, of capital coming into the town, um, of new clubs and societies, new some new political currents, new cultural ideas, um, sort of societal changes happening very rapidly as these influences are coming into the town. Um, but like I said, I don't, I don't think that's easily separated from um, a belief in the intervention of saints, um, a belief in the sort of um, spiritual significance of Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus. All of these things, I think, intertwine to have a, you know, makes us think more broadly about what do we mean by miracle and what did people at the time think of as, as miracles? What constitutes a miracle? An economic miracle, a religious miracle, um, a social miracle, a political miracle? 
So all of these things seem to be sort of thrown into this <clears throat> this um, this melting pot um, in Bethlehem at that time, <clears throat> and and I, and I and I think figures like Marie Alphonsine were very important to that for the Bethlehem merchants to show that there this wasn't just about making as much money as you possibly could. They were very keen to sort of sponsor certain new public building projects in Bethlehem. If you go to the Milk Grotto Shrine today in Bethlehem, for example, this was directly sponsored by families, um, uh, particularly the Qatan family, which had um, uh, whose whose inscription is still above the, the shrine there today, which dates from the 1870s and 80s. Uh, and various other kind of monuments around the town within the church itself as well. So an idea that you're you're investing in your hometown, <clears throat> um, and as a way of of um, of showing your rootedness, of showing your piety, um, in and 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 as a sort of explanatory mechanism, I suppose, for for the accumulation of large amounts of capital as well, um, and that. Provokes a, it also provokes a lot of anxiety amongst the Bethlehem families, particularly amongst men. So a lot of the story, the book, a lot of the stories about a kind of masculine anxiety. What happens when eventually women start to also join in in this process of overseas migration? Jubilee's <clears throat> um, generation, it was largely young men, but that's not really sustainable. The, a drop off in number of children per family starts to happen by the 1880s, 1890s, Jubilee when he's in his 20s and 30s. He himself only has three children compared to his parents' um, eight children. And his children are massively spa they're spaced out by ten a 10-year gap in one case between two of his children. And clearly that's because he's not in the town for most of the time. He's rarely in Bethlehem. He goes away for sometimes years at a time. Um, again, opening this question of women being actually the people who keep things running back in Bethlehem itself. Um, so that's not really sustained. It's almost the system. It's quite patriarchal business model that develops these family firms sending out young men. It contains within it the seeds of its own downfall, um, because eventually um, to, to keep producing um, children and sustaining families, because family sits at the heart of so much of this, uh, Bethlehem might start if, for example, Bethlehem is based in, let's say, Central America, will come back to Bethlehem to find a bride. Again, very you know, very the age of of women's marriage seems to be coming down and down in the late nineteenth century. So brides of sometimes 13, 14 years old are being sent off um, to the other side of the world to marry a young man who has opened a shop there as a branch of his family's business. And this anxiety, okay, what's that, what happens when we start allowing young women, young girls to to be exposed to what were often seen as the moral depravities of the of America, this term that we were discussing. Um, so in terms of the, the, the sort of effect on society's moral fiber, as they're exposed to greater mixing of the sexes, different types of cultural norms, but also the family's ability to be rooted in Bethlehem itself. If you are now having children on the other side of the world, um, as it is increasingly the case by the turn of the 20th century, how do you maintain that base back in Bethlehem itself as the older generation starts to die out? I think this was one of Jubilee's really key concerns. And he watched people, his children and his nephews and nieces start to, you know, successively one by one leave Bethlehem and set up permanently, in, whether it's in Paris, whether it's in El Salvador, in Bolivia, in various countries in the Americas. Um, 
suddenly you're losing your base in Bethlehem, which was the very sort of um, sat at the heart of your whole identity as a family business. We're from Bethlehem and the, and the sense of religious significance, piety um, and social status that went with that. So it's also a story of of those ties being loosened and, and women in particular starting to um, sort of increasingly be able to impose themselves on, on those patterns. How do the stories of uh, Jabril and Sister Marie Alphonsine end? And also what happened to Bethlehem in the long term? So in the case of Jubrail, um, it's a sad end to his life. <clears throat> you know, he we think he's died once in 1909, but he's resurrected by Marie Alphonsine. And then um, he eventually dies in 1931, which is a time, it's a t- <laughs> It's, it's a poignant moment for the, that, that's really where the book ends as well. Um, because the Bethlehem families have gone, the Bethlehem businesses have gone into a massive crisis due primarily to the Great Depression. Um, the countries where they're most heavily invested, particularly Chile, um, to a lesser extent, um, Bolivia, Mexico, the United States, of course, France was a huge area of investment for these families. Now, these are some of the hardest struck countries by the great crash of 1929 and the reverberations of that through 1930-31. So you see sort of almost one by one, the Bethlehem family is going bankrupt in this period, including Jubrahil's family. And there are some surviving letters, actually, which Jubrahil himself penned, where he's desperately trying to, to um, bring in his creditors who owe the family money. So that these businesses would work on credit as they got as they became more and more successful. They would, they would give large amounts of produce to... Um, to relatives, to smaller businesses wishing to start up in various areas of the Americas. And suddenly they were owed massive amounts of money at the very time that their businesses were folding. So he's desperately trying to bring in his creditors um, without much success. And so he dies with the family um, going bankrupt. And this is a sort of well-known story in Bethlehem today. Some of the most famous Bethlehem merchant families, the Dabdubs, the Jasir family, um, um, notoriously were um, uh, were, were left um, penniless by the by the early 1930s. Many of them later recovered and found ways to um, to revive their businesses. But at the time of his death, uh, that was the um, that was the, the great sort of series of events that were unfolding. So it's a sad end, but also seemed to me in some ways a, a, a suitable way to to finish that story. Almost a kind of a rise and a fall, and However, the Bethlehemites managed to recover or, or readapt in the through the 1940s and beyond. Um, it would never quite be the same again. There's the political context of the British Mandate coming to an end and the, the establishment of the State of Israel and the very negative um, consequences of that for trade for these Bethlehem families. And so this seemed like, going back to this idea of the Age of Miracles, that somehow that had been shut down. And several of the older generation that I interviewed um, of Bethlehemites who were certainly not Jubilee's age, but say that his his grandchildren, even in some cases children's generation, were very adamant that you don't get miracles like that happening anymore. The ones such as the the, the resurrection of Jubilee himself, those things don't happen in Bethlehem these days. That's a, that's a, this this time of miracles has has passed, and I found that I found that really interesting that these days Bethlehem is locked into a much more kind of um, harsh reality where the possibilities 
seem to be much more rest- restricted. So that's um, I, I, I don't want to take away uh, the the various remarkable ways that Bethlehemites continue to to resist the the conditions that they find themselves in. And the Dabdub family, just to take one example, is spread out all over the world and often have been remarkably successful as artists, as writers, as people of business and in many different fields. So that's, it's it's incredible really, the, the adaptability of these families on a kind of global scale and within Bethlehem itself, ongoing forms of 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 eking out a living, but also of, of finding creativity and beauty within a very difficult set of circumstances. I don't want to detract from that, but it seemed like a very different age, this sort of pre-1940s age and Jubilee's death seems to, seems to coincide with that. Um, Marie Alphonsine has, um, the, the nun who saved his life. She died in 1927. She retired to Ein Kerem, um, and lived out sort of the final stages of her notebooks seem to depict her living in kind of tranquil retirement there before her, before she died. <clears throat> when she died, a great controversy broke out amongst the sisters of the, the amongst the Rosary sisters, this, con- this congregation that she founded. And it revolved around her role in setting up that congregation in the first place, because it was she had to set it up in secret. Her visions um, could not be more broadly known because it would have been too controversial for a woman um, explicitly advocating for kind of Arab um, salvation and Arab um, community work. They had to do it all through the um, through this male priest um, who who I mentioned earlier who was officially the founder of the congregation. And when her notebooks were discovered upon her death, this kind of rival faction within the Rosary Sisters um, burnt the notebooks as a way to destroy evidence of Marie Alphonsine's role in establishing the congregation. Luckily, however, Marie Alphonsine's sister and supporters of Marie Alphonsine had kept some copies which had been transcribed. So the story does eventually come to light, but these tensions within the congregation, within the order, I think reflect these these wider... contestations over um over local agency in within within sort of catholic missions um and and the specifically kind of gendered aspect of that i have one last question i'm a huge fan of tv series and recently you know watching like probably many millions around the world the last of us or 1923 i was wondering if you ever thought while writing the book that perhaps the stories of Jubrail and Marie Alphonsine can actually fit the models of this current, you know, TV series, and perhaps could be a good remedy and a balance against uh, the success of a TV series like Fauda. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of Fauda. I have to say, I did. Uh, I probably shouldn't even admit that I've watched it, but I think it's uh, problematic on many levels. <laughs> Just state that one. Just get that one out there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it does have a sort of cinematic quality to it. I think Jubilee's tale and 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 the miracle, especially. I think when I was there's a chapter devoted to the miracle where I was trying to just uh, imagine that playing out in real time, and and going back to this sort of magical realist ethos, assume that there really was, um, you know, follow the logic or follow the the belief system, I suppose, of the characters involved and assume that some kind of divine intervention takes place and that the Virgin Mary is plays an integral role within that. So I try to write that that out in a in a I suppose quite um visual way. So I definitely had that 
in my mind that um, as bad as my writing is, as a sort of a an attempt to kind of in that particular chapter to capture something quite cinematic. Um, so I would be, you know, if there's if there's script writers out there, I'd be absolutely delighted to hear their ideas. Um, I'm very keen to to see this move in different directions. And I, uh, you know, on a wider level, I think that's that's what I've become quite interested in. These so many different ways in which we can tell stories about history, in which we can <clears throat> narrate history. And there's no reason why, uh, you know, and, and lots of academic stories do get involved with script writing projects, um, with theatre, with with art, with the visual arts. There's so many different ways that we can think about capturing history. Um, in my case, I guess I was more interested in the writing style of things. How can <clears throat> how can prose, or how can experimentation with a different form of prose? It isn't just that sort of realist prose that we're used to writing in academic history. How can that actually perhaps allow us access into into, into meaning, right? Into into extracting uh, understanding meaning from from historical events through the writing itself. I was really inspired by Walter Benjamin in this, the, the German Jewish philosopher of the early 20th century, who had this idea of montage um, <clears throat> in his um, in his uh, unfinished work called the Arcades Project, where his idea was to sort of capture the the experience of um, 20th century modernity, and particularly kind of mechanized modernity, not by writing continual prose with constant analysis and explanation but sort of flash flashpoints or um snapshots almost like a film reel unfolding that was Walter Benjamin's idea um and I think there are lots of historians out there doing really interesting stuff with that in terms of how we write that's that's what most kind of um interested me and hopefully in some small way this book is a contribution to that this was Jacob Norris author of The Lives and Deaths of Jubrail Dabdub or How the Bethlehemites Discovered America, published by Stanford University Press in 2023. Jacob, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Great pleasure. <laughs>